Have you ever wondered what's meant by the term evidence-based teaching? And why is it that evidence-based teaching has become such an important topic among circles of educators and policymakers? And what are some of the models and strategies that underpin evidence-based teaching? Well, in this series, I'm going to attempt to tackle some of these tricky questions. So sit back, clear your mind, and get ready to enjoy the Powerful Learning Podcast. G'day and welcome to the Powerful Learning Podcast, where our mission is to help you know more, do more, and be more by delving into the science of effective learning and teaching. My name's Luke Rowe, and I'm a university lecturer and researcher who specialises in evidence-based teaching and the science of learning. And in today's podcast, we'll explore the topic of evidence-based teaching. And in particular, I'll consider what's meant by the term evidence-based teaching and the broader educational context that surrounds this relatively recent trend in the education sector. So let's get stuck into this term, evidence-based teaching. What do we mean by that? And how does that differ from other forms of teaching? Well, according to Helgerton and Mentor in 2020, they've suggested that educators are now in an evidence era where actions are justified through a language shrouded in talk of research, data, and best practice. Now, that evidence era that they're referring to, that's led to a system-wide attempt at helping teachers and teacher candidates, so teachers in training, it's, it's led to helping them access, interpret, and apply educational evidence in their teaching practice. Now, it's that notion that we sometimes refer to as evidence-based teaching. Now, there are similar terms, such as evidence-based practice, evidence-informed practice, and the medical model or the clinical teaching model that you may have heard of. And they're all describing how evidence can be drawn upon to inform various educational practices. So the difference in the terminology is not substantive. The underlying meaning is common throughout. They refer to research evidence, among other things, mostly scientific evidence to guide teaching practice. Now, where did all this begin? Well, it found its origin story in the healthcare, evidence-based healthcare models. So the evidence-based healthcare models have been around for quite a while, several decades now, and they've been changing this idea of healthcare based on expertise, experience, intuition into an evidence-based profession. And I'm sure that we're all benefactors of that. When we go out and get our vaccines, we get medications, we've uh, undergone surgery that's all been informed by evidence-based medicine. Now, what, what's one of the definitions of evidence-based medicine? Well, here's an article by Mann and colleagues that was released in 2020 who, who have defined evidence-based healthcare and evidence-based medicine in this way. They've suggested evidence-based medicine is the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of the individual patient. It means integrating individual clinical expertise with the best available external clinical evidence from systematic research. So there's a real theme here on drawing upon internal factors, so factors to do with the, the judgment of the clinician, that is their experience and expertise, their judgment, and then external factors, so the context, the patient, 
and, of course, the external evidence from research-based sources. Now, let's shift gears and look at education. What does it mean to have an evidence-based practice model in education, evidence-based teaching model? Now, there's an article, or at least it was a research report uh, produced by Furlong uh, in 2014, and Furlong has said this. The notion of clinical practice or evidence-based teaching is essentially conveying the need to bring together knowledge and evidence from different sources through a carefully sequenced program, which is deliberately designed to integrate teachers' experiential learning at the chalk face with research-based knowledge and insights from academic study and scholarship. So again, an emphasis on not dismissing internal factors such as your expertise, experience, and intuitions, but to incorporate and integrate those things with external sources of research evidence. And my own definition kind of points in that direction. It's, it's suggesting that evidence-based teaching is not a technique or theory so much as a meta framework for organising various approaches to teaching in light of research evidence, expertise, experience, and of course, the students' needs and the broader learning, curricula, and communal context. So evidence is just one piece of that wider puzzle. So let's consider the context of evidence-based teaching because it's a polarised context. It's contested and it's currently uh, getting a lot of momentum in not only educational circles, but uh, policymakers and reformers of education. There's a lot of talk about this notion of evidence-based teaching in that regard. So in order to explore that context, I think it's worth diving back into the mid-1990s, into 1996, with a speech that David, Professor David Hargraves did. He was speaking about the importance of evidence-based education uh, in a speech called Teaching as a Research-Based Profession, Possibilities and Prospects. He said this, teaching is not at present a research-based profession. I have no doubt that if it were, teaching would be more effective and more satisfying. The goal of enhancing effectiveness and satisfaction can be achieved only by a combination of several means, of which an adequate research base is just one. It's, in my view, a singularly important one, which deserves to be given priority. And that, of course, kicked off a conversation that has been happening for the last 20 to 30 years in relation to evidence-based teaching. Here's another view in favour of evidence-based teaching. And it's by the founder of Research Ed, Tom Bennett. He said it this way. Future historians of education will look back on this period as a renaissance, a time when dogma and orthodoxy were being challenged and gatekeepers, priesthoods and shamans felt the ground shift beneath their feet. The sleep of reason has bred monsters of pedagogy and they've been fattened and nurtured by the relative ignorance of the teaching profession. Not a general ignorance, but a specific one. Ignorance of the evidence bases behind the claims made in education. This renaissance has been accompanied by an evolution as teachers and academics reach out to one another and seek sincere, authentic dialogue. So quite a poetic and punchy uh, outline of the effect of evidence-based teaching in education. Now, another 
sort of favourable view here that, that really does highlight, um, uh, I think, a, a pro-evidence-based teaching attitude is by Bob Slavin or Robert Slavin. In 2017, he wrote an article called Evidence-Based Reform in Education in the Journal of Education for Students Placed at Risk. And he talks about this idea of bumpy lizards. And so he, he refers, goes, goes through the introduction of this article in reference to one of his friends who was a publisher of a, a big um, publishing firm. And he was trying to figure out which of two books to put on the market between two biology books. And one of the biology books was clearly superior in its evidence base. That is, it had a stronger research base to inform the contents of that book. However, the front cover wasn't nearly as nice as the alternative, which had a picture of a lizard on the front. And not only was it a lizard, but it was a three-dimensional pop-up bumpy lizard. And when they employed focus groups to try and select or get an idea of which books the the students would, would preference out of these two options. The focus groups unan- were unanimous. I wonder if you can guess which book they selected. Was it the book full of r- excellent research evidence but a fairly boring front cover or was it the book that was void of research evidence that had a lovely, aesthetically pleasing, bumpy lizard on the front? Of course, you guessed it. It was the latter one with the bumpy lizard on the front. And on reflection of that experience uh, and, and recounting that story, Bob Slavin has mentioned this. He said, books, computer software, professional development and other education products are sold using relationship marketing in which an army of sales reps works to build friendships with key decision makers. Surface appearances, e.g. bumpy lizards, and other features unlikely to matter to learning also play a key role. What is missing in the entire adoption process is any role for evidence of effectiveness. So he's obviously very much a proponent of evidence-based education. So do you agree with those those views? Do you agree with the pro-evidence-based teaching perspective there? And we're not just talking about any form of evidence here, and we'll get to this in another section of our podcast series, but we're talking about scientifically informed evidence, because I guess you could suggest that intuition is a form of evidence, experience is a form of evidence, and not only your own experience, but vicarious experience, that is, the experiences of your colleagues, your more knowledgeable others. So we're talking about scientific evidence. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think teachers currently and educators are currently ignorant of evidence, as Tom Bennett claimed in his statement? Or do you think there's more to it? Let's have a look at some of the counter views here, views against evidence-based teaching. When we say what teachers should be doing, we imply what teachers should not be doing by virtue of saying what they should be doing. So the flip side of that is that we problematize teachers who don't buy into evidence-based teaching when we say that evidence-based teaching is the way, it's the superior path for educators, and we gloat about it, we do it gleefully with arrogance and a supercilious attitude, we belittle those who do not embrace evidence-based teaching. 
And so we problematize that portion of the teaching profession. We undermine their agency. We overlook excellence, which may be at this stage independent of their sense of uh, their, their cognizance of the evidence. We also narrow notions of success because evidence is not the only way to teaching excellence. It's one way. It could be, in my view, uh, a far more probable way of attaining excellence in education than basing, basing your path on intuitions and experience alone. But there's certainly other ways to get to the mountaintop of excellence in education. Plus, this problematization of the teaching profession who does not embrace evidence-based teaching, it, it can repel talent. It can erode trust. It can misinform the public. Very quickly, teachers who don't embrace this new model of evidence-based teaching can be counselled. They can be, uh, I guess, looked upon uh, as being less than the excellent teachers they potentially are. So we've got to consider that as one of the unintended consequences here and be very careful with our language uh, around evidence-based teaching and how this whole idea of evidence-based teaching should be translated into practice. Okay, here's another view, another objection to this idea of evidence-based teachings. One of the implications of evidence-based teaching here is that learning is a key outcome. And when we talk about learning as a key outcome of evidence-based teaching, we're really talking about academic learning, learning that happens in a measurable sense. Now, I'm personally of the perspective that the notion of learning when, we, when it comes down to evidence-based teaching is far broader than that. It can be social skills, it can be critical thinking, it can be creativity, it can be learning moral education, how to be a better citizen. citizen. So my, my, my own personal definition is much broader than that. But a lot of these evidence-based teaching models, a lot of the research is all grounded in improving learning insofar as we mean academic achievement. So the academic achievements of students in schools, in tertiary education settings, these are the types of outcomes that we're referring to, or at least implying when we talk about evidence-based teaching. So with that in mind, think about this objection from Gert Biesta, who famously wrote in 2012, that education is about education, not about learning. This requires that we keep working on the question as to what is distinctively educational about education and that we resist the learnification of educational discourse and practice wherever and whenever it arises. So, Biesta's point that we resist the learnification of educational discourse and practice wherever and whenever it arises is really saying that we don't want to get lost in thinking that education is all about one thing, one simple thing called learning. And when we, when we focus too much on that one thing called learning, it's at the exclusion of the many other incredible, transformative, enriching things that education is also about. Now, I don't think Biest is arguing that we should extract learning out of the equation of education. I don't think he's anti-learning so much as he's against the idea of making it everything that education represents. So he's got a good point. He's got a really good point. Here's another thought. By Barbara Bleeman. 
She's an educational consultant, author, and expert in English literature. Uh, she's a secondary school teacher in the UK. And in response to uh, edu- uh, a presentation entitled Cognitive Science in the Classroom, she wrote this on Twitter, and I took note of this because it kicked up quite a Twitter storm. So she wrote, to seek to impose this, that is, uh, the cognitive science in the classroom approaches. So to seek to impose this on teachers across all subjects on the basis of such limited and uncertain applied research and evidence is deeply worrying. So she's concerned about the quality of evidence and how confident some people can be in thrusting that evidence upon teachers and saying, go forth and do as the evidence suggests. When that evidence itself is in question, when we, we don't necessarily have a good index of credibility on the quality of that evidence. So again, another good point as to why people are object, objecting here. Now, here's another objection, and it's more about values. So when we consider education as a system, as an institute, we need to think about the people within that system, the educators themselves, the staff, the community, the people who are most likely to work in education and and what their values are, what their their personal values are and how those might manifest in the educational setting. Now, in the West, the education systems are strongly influenced by postmodernist themes. And those themes often argue that knowledge is based on a personal perspective, based on individual perspectives. So there's this notion of standpoint theory that's, that's pointing to the idea that We can only see reality from our own standpoint, uh, our own identity, our own perspective. And those views are often at odds with science and the notion of objectivity. Science is is explicitly objective in its goals. It, It assumes that there is a truth out there in the natural world and that the scientific method, when applied, can help us unravel some of that truth a little bit more accurately than if we applied any other method to that natural world. Now, of course, in response to this this idea of evidence-based teaching, which itself is predicated on the scientific method and scientific research, the counter pushback here is the the post-objectivists. So if science is an objective enterprise or it seeks to be objective, even though it's, it's an impossible or asymptotic goal, there is a, a branch of scholarship called the post-objectivists' critical scholarship that sums up, I think, some of the cynicisms about objectivity and scientific research to inform education. And Stetsenko wrote an article in 2014, I think summed this up quite well. She argues that insofar as researchers accept that values, interests and power dynamics permeate knowledge, they still are facing and themselves grapple with the charge of ideological partiality that is considered to be incompatible with the traditionally understood objective science. And she's put the word objective in inverted commas as if to question its veracity, that that is even attainable. And so when you go on to read the rest of her article, she very much assumes, uh, based on some of these arguments, that objectivity is an unattainable goal. And I would agree with her in absolute terms. Of course, we can't remove ourselves fully from the picture as scientists when we're, when we're conducting science. 
But that was never the claim of science. The claim is to to uh, seek to to move towards and progress towards an objective representation of reality insofar as our imperfect ways get us there. Now, another argument here against this notion of evidence-based teaching is that, and it kind of taps into this idea of objectivity and a kind of universal approach. So the idea of science is that you can generalise findings from scientific research setting can generalise the, the, the results or the implications of the results to different settings. And that's called inferential research, where you look at the findings in the research context and you, you seek to apply those in similar contexts and hope that those will produce similar results. So the idea against that, however, is that everyone's different. Every circumstance is different. All the context is different. Can you see how there's discrepancies here? And people object to that. And that, in some ways, is a valid objection. But, of course, inferential statistics themselves, again, don't work on absolute terms. It's not about can it generalise or not, yes or no. It's more about to what extent is this, the, are these findings likely to generalise. So there's no... This notion that there is no universal truths, that there is no basis for uh, establishing the science of learning or evidence-based teaching because of no universal truths and this unattainable objectivity, I think is a bit of a chimera, right? So because of two, two reasons, two reasons I object to that. If there's no universal truths, then what's happened to the very statement that there's no universal truths? Well, that's just sawn itself off at the branch it sat on and <laughs> collapsed under its own weight. It's a self-contradictory statement. The other thing is that evidence-based teaching, you know, it, it, this, this idea that people are so different suggests that evidence-based teaching is fraught from the outset because it assumes findings from research can be generalised across different contexts, cultures and classrooms, but evidence-based teaching doesn't deny that there are issues with that. It's not absolute. Rather, it seeks to integrate those differences into teaching so that it can be guided by evidence that tends to work with similar students and under similar conditions. So there are findings like distributing the amount of study into smaller pockets of time with having rest in between for consolidation and reflection is more helpful generally for learning than if you mass the same or the equivalent amount of practice into a single sitting. Now, that will, that will work across different cultures and contexts with different students, this idea of distributed practice. It'll work across different cultures, contexts, with different students. So there are some things that contradict this claim that all students are unique and therefore you can't use the science of learning or evidence-based teaching with different students. Now, I think Dylan Williams summed this up very well, very eloquently. He said that ultimately, we should remember that teaching is interesting because our students are so different, but only possible because they are so similar. And that's why we can go to work as educators and reproduce some of the patterns and templates of what worked yesterday 
by generalizing what worked yesterday into the con unique context of today and tomorrow. And we might change and tweak those things, but by and large, a lot of our practices, a lot of our behaviors, a lot of our underlying belief and knowledge about those practices and behaviors will not necessarily radically change. So there is an element of reproducibility to what we do as educators. And that's why evidence-based teaching wants to get to the bottom of what those patterns are in their most effective form so that we can replicate those into those different contexts that we are educating students within. Now, I think Dylan William put a bit of icing on the cake to his previous statement. He also said this, everything works somewhere, nothing works everywhere. And that speaks to this overarching point that even your best available evidence is not going to generalise to every setting. And again, I point back to the idea that that is a naive straw, straw man argument. No one ever claims that evidence works everywhere, right? but it's more about a probability, a probability of the application of evidence succeeding in one context or another. And to the extent that the evidence is high quality, that it's credible, that it has a high effect size and that it matches the conditions that you're implementing the evidence within, then you've got a good shot at succeeding. And that's, that's the claim. That's the probabilistic claim of evidence-based teaching in the science of learning, is it improves your chances of succeeding as a teacher. And in so doing, it improves the chances of your students succeeding in their learning endeavours. So here's a summary of the key ideas. We can say that the evidence-based teaching context is dynamic. It's constantly changing. Since the days of David Hargraves in 1996, when he made that speech and kicked off the discussion about evidence-based teaching being more satisfying and more effective, to the present day, where it, my Australian government has invested $50-plus million into an evidence-based institute to help educators embrace and engage with evidence to inform their practice, where there are major evidence-based institutes across the world, the Educational Endowment Foundation, over £100 million are invested in that organisation per year to improve evidence-based teaching and learning. And it's the same with the What Works Clearinghouse, an educational sciences institute in America. These organisations are being uh, built around this idea of evidence-based teaching and learning and using scientific research evidence to inform practice. And in so doing, to improve practice, to improve student outcomes, not just in academic smarts and book smarts, in all manner of areas. However, it's a contested space. We can see that there are clashes in values. There are assumptions on both sides of the argument for and against evidence-based teaching. And I sympathize with those. So it's, it's a contested space and it's changing, it's dynamic and it's polarized. Now, all of this said, it's completely unsurprising that there's a divide between research and practice, which is what I've been alluding to. And that's going to be the topic of our next podcast. Now, that's about all we have time for in today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to know more about the release of upcoming content or support this program, I'll include links in the show notes. Until next time, may you continue to learn powerfully.